You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. And we are live. Hey people, how are you doing? My name is Matt Phillips. I am the creator of OneChatLive.com and you are listening to episode 169 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast recorded as always live uh, Tuesdays on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. So um, in this episode, we are continuing our countdown to Therapy Expo 2023, which is happening at the NEC Birmingham this November 22nd and 23rd. Um, as a lead up to that, we're going to be bringing you guest speakers who are going to be in the STA Update Theatre, so you get to know a little bit about them to help you make what is already proving to be a very difficult um, decision when it comes to seeing how you are going to organise your time over the two days. If you're not aware of Therapy Expo, then this will give you a chance to have a little bit of information about what it's about. We have done specials on Therapy Expo, so look through our catalogue of 168 episodes and you'll see all the information you need about Therapy Expo. So tonight, my special guest is going to be internationally respected educator Angela Jackson, or Angie Jackson, um, who will be telling us about her presentation, How to Integrate Neurocognitive Approaches into a Rehabilitation Setting, which is happening in the STA Theatre at Therapy Expo at 9.15am on day two. So Angie is going to be opening the show on day two. I'm very much looking forward to it. Before we bring up Angela, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who has shared last week's show, episode 168, which was a special panel debate entitled The Changing Face of Qualifications, Who Can We Trust? It was a very special show. Um, anybody who is a soft tissue therapist and is confused and indeed angered by the poor information out there with regards to should is this qualification worth doing who is this validator where does it sit with regards to a university why are some jobs not accepting this qualification etc then this is i'm going to say part one because it's a it's a big conversation but fortunately we had four people four educators um to join us and talk really openly and honestly about where we are at the moment and and to look at it's actually going to be a shock to some people who aren't aware of of why um, suddenly we had this level three, four and five develop. Um, and basically, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but it was pretty commercially driven. And all four of the educators who came on the show admitted that. Even Susan Finley, who was, it was wonderful to see on the show, um, admitted that she was involved in that decision making and didn't realize to what extent it was just going to be commercially driven because now people could suddenly charge for a diluted down level three and charge you to upsell it to a four and then suddenly introduce even more manual therapy based level five um, and all four educators got together um, who, who used different bodies like there was from BTEC, there was ITEC, there was independent ones we had with us Anna Maria Mazzieri um, from the school uh, director of the school of soft tissue therapy we had Mike Grice uh, director of movement therapy education who is an independent um, examiner or examination board and then also we had Gary Benton who's got a wealth of information as anyone will know about examining boards and, and accreditors and validation. There's lots and lots of information in it, but the most important thing is that you guys share it. And a lot of you really have. I was so happy to see you guys sharing it on your personal feeds and everywhere, because it's a conversation which is probably vital if we're going to improve our industry 
and and just get some standardization and get some conversation between the various organizations and associations out there who probably to tell you the truth are guilty of the dysfunction we've got um we a few people emailed in and asked why wasn't so-and-so represented or why wasn't so-and-so here and why did you only have like three people we've heard of before and or four people we all knew about and quite simply myself and gary worked very hard and we invited lots of people some legitimately couldn't do it they had to pull out the last minute because of life gets in the way but others for whatever reason didn't reply or just said no not interested and this was part of the problem because we want to get a part two and we want to invite everybody who's involved in it together because that's what's all about isn't it it's all about communication so thank you for sharing it keep sharing it it's it made me open my eyes to how important i already knew how important this podcast was but how what a tool this podcast is playing now in, in changing our industry and improving our industry and basically ensuring that our industry will be a, a profitable, which is important, a rewarding career choice for you guys in there. And also, equally importantly, um, rewarding for your clients, because if they're not getting better and appreciating and, and, and benefiting from your work, then the industry is going to collapse. So so there we go. That wasn't too heavy, was it, as an intro? No. So um, hopefully in the distant future, not too distant future, there will be a part two with representation for more of the associations and organizations out there. Anyway, back to tonight. If you listen to the podcast, then we do always record this live and people have come in the live lounge already. If you do want to join us live, then like I say, just go along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel at uh, eight o'clock on the Tuesday or check out, follow us on social media and you'll see what's coming up. Uh, Glenn Murphy's here. Hey, Glenn, how are you doing? If you do join us live, I can bring your questions and your your beautifully um, arranged faces and logos up onto the screen. Gary Benson, founder of the, US, of the USA, one day. Gary Benson, founder of the STA, is um, uh, in the in the house as well, which is fantastic. Good to see you, Gary. Nikki Mansfield is here as well. Hey, Nikki. Evening, my little sausages, says Nikki. Have you missed me? We have, Nikki. And other people are flooding through as well, but I have connected. I have taken or kept our guest for tonight too long down in the lobby already so as i say we're going to be um full eyes now on therapy expo i'm going to be bringing up internationally respected educator angela jackson just before you start listening again just to remind you angela's going to be in the sta theater 9 15 a.m on day two day two of therapy expo with us she's also going to be there um on day one um here, i think 145 or something in theater a um, but the uh, topic is going to be how to integrate neurocognitive approaches into a rehabilitation setting. So without further ado, let's bring up Angela Jackson. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey Angie, how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. Matt, how are you? Thank you for your patience. I was getting all flustered. I was thinking, I've left Angie way too long. I was going to say, you know, I should have said, you go down the pub if you want and just, I'll be back in half an hour. So sorry about that. But it was such an important show last night. And as an educator yourself, who I know, I don't know, is frustration the right word? Because you, you do, you've devoted your courses you do to kind of better informing people. And you come across a lot of misinformation out there. But does it frustrate you to see some of the that this kind of misrepresentation and things, for example, to do with young athletes and female athletes out there? Or do you just take it in your stride? No, I don't, to be honest. Uh, Gary and I spoke about it today and how there are difficulties for um, clinical educators to get insurance around making sure that we um, have our right insurance in place to be able to look 
to train sports therapists, sports soft tissue therapists, rehabilitators. Um, and it's just not straightforward. So I think there are lots of frustrations as a clinical educator about, I know that there are people who have got different titles, but who bring way more skills than somebody else who's perhaps got more opportunities. And so it's trying to create a level playing field, really, where everybody gets the recognition that they, they rightly deserve. And I guess across that misrepresentation, I think there is most definitely disparity I see when I go into football academies to work is that there's still a lot of posts of volunteers um, within women's soccer. And yet the male equivalent is paid a lot of money. And there's a massive disparity between the facilities that those females get to train in. Um, but time will tell. Uh, I'll never forget one of the Irish rugby doctors in my early career showed a picture of a wooden bench and a little black medical bag. And he said, and this is mine. And then he flashed through to one of the American football teams and each player had a station with his own bed and his own like elaborate equipment. And these things take time. So I think what's important is we've got to raise awareness of these disparities. And that's what you're doing really, really well via the platforms uh, and keep up the good work. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Coming from somebody who is who's making so many waves in the industry as well, not just for representing women, but now you've mentioned kind of representation. I mean, you must notice that these days there's yourself, there's people like Dr. Claire Minchell, we've got Claire Robertson, we've got so many fantastic educators. And if I think back 10 years ago, like at early therapy expos maybe, it was. It almost seemed like there was two or three token women and the rest was just a sea of, of men. It was just mannels everywhere. Have you noticed that? Are you kind of encouraged by how many female educators are out there these days? Yeah, we all, we all speak and we all hold hands pretty regularly. Um, I guess, I think females traditionally have a little bit of an imposter syndrome. It was a very male dominated. Every conference you went to, um, I feel like Joe Gibson led us uh, forward and popped ahead above the parapet and said, I can do this. And there were other you know, good representation, Alison Grimaldi, there's some, there's some good clinical um, educators out there that are female. But now you start to go to conferences and the professors are female. That was never so. Um, so I guess, though, the men in physiotherapy would have said that they were underrepresented within the physio world, but they were overrepresented when it came to conferences. So what we worked on was there were fewer men in the profession, but they didn't seem scared to to share their views. And I guess I'm really proud of what the, the female educators have done in saying, well, we've got a lot of valuable experience to share and we'd like to kind of voice that. So yeah, it's, it's a growing band and periodically we all have a massive wobble, ring each other and make sure we're all okay. Brilliant. And it's fantastic as well. I mean, female pelvic health has, has, has not been talked about enough so it's really important that there are more people talking about pelvic health and everything and it and it's and it's not just an isolated topic anymore it fits into everything as soon as you're talking about working with a female athlete it's an integral part of it but it's so good as well to because i think sometimes there was a time when it seemed like the only conference speakers were talking if they were women they were talking about pelvic health it was kind of like that for a while it's like what's that all about hold on that's not what it's supposed to be so it's very exciting to see um other yeah. people anyway so there we go so thank you for giving up your time for people who aren't aware of you, um, Angie, and where you come from, could you give us a little breakdown of, of your past and how you got into specialising and what you do today? 
Yes, of course. So I was that young injured athlete who kind of ran around like a, a Duracell bunny playing lots of different sports, got injured. And um, I never really understood and nobody ever really explained to me why I got injured. And yet my tennis partner didn't, my other hockey mates didn't. And so consequently, you sort of look at it and say, how do we stop children from getting injured if we don't understand why they got injured? And so uh, over time, I uh, ended up as a physiotherapist and I started working more specifically um, with young athletes and spent the best part of 30 odd years um, running a physiotherapy clinic, which specialized in youth athletes. Um, but also working in all sorts of different fields from clubs to schools to national governing bodies um, and building up that sort of experience and I guess expertise on looking at really why um, children specifically get injured at the time they do. And I think um, one of the analogies would be that you could take a class of 30 children and they don't all um, fall down and get injured at the same time. You know, why does one injured a child get an injury one week compared to why didn't they get injured last week or next week and so that's really fueled my passion for wanting to explore this whole sort of complexities really of as to why we get injuries that's fantastic and and one thing in particular i like and i mentioned this before was you i've listened to a lot of your um podcasts and things and and excerpts from your shows and you put in little things which make clinicians stop and go of course they're kind of like real penny drop moments like a lot of us do get so besotted by a blog or a system of doing something that we that we think right well this is going to happen to everybody and if we just imagine if we've got a team on a pitch doing pretty much the same thing the fact that they're not all suffering from the same injury even though they're doing the same activity shows i mean it just highlights individuality and how we do need to be far more individual and think further past just the mechanical way of doing things and there'll be other references as well which i shall point out tonight people but i mean this is why i just want to take this moment for people who aren't aware of your website because there's so much information on there i'm going to bring that up um, if you listen to podcasts and you can't see this but there's a splash screen on youtube now showing the website andrewjacksonphysio.com there is a wealth of information on there as well as um, in, um, courses online, face-to-face courses and things. So I would go along to there, angelajacksonphysio.com, and just have a look. What I quite like, as you're here live, Angela, could you give us a chat through some of the courses you do offer and what some of the real moments of clarity you've found that participants do have? Absolutely. Um, so the the sort of main focus now is on trying to uh, empower clinicians to help um, children get back to sport. And so um, there are various ways in which you can do that. Um, you need to obviously understand firstly what pathologies you're dealing with. And so there's a course called the MSK Pediatric Pathology. And that's all about um, all of the different type of growth plates, the anatomy of the child and at what age those uh, growth plates appear. And what does that mean for pathology? And then there's a sort of assessment and return to play, trying to work out why kids got injured from a physical perspective, um, how to assess growth and maturation, and then how to get them back on the field of play safely and keep them there. And then the third element is also looking at stress fractures, bone stress injuries, uh, and the whole relative energy deficiency in sport and overtraining. So all of those compromise the what we call kids back to sport program. And you can either do those online or in person. 
And then what I kind of feel really as a, an educator is there's no point in me just getting really good clinicians if we don't educate the parents, if we don't educate the athlete, if we don't educate the coaches and PE teachers. So I've created a site now called Kids Back to Sport. And that's got lots of downloads coming onto it, lots of different clinicians feeding in blogs. And really the, the, the concept is, is to create a fantastic resource center for anybody involved in the athlete team um, from the parents to the kids and, and really try and create the go-to place so that you know that you're getting the right kind of information about why injuries do occur and what you can do proactively to get them better. So there's a bit of something for everybody. That's really interesting that you've mentioned the Kids Back to Sport. We'll make sure that all these links go into the show notes if you listen Thank to you. the podcast, because that is something we've talked about time and time again when it comes to working with young athletes is often it is the parents who need the education. And sadly, a lot, not a lot, well, no, I don't know, it depends who you're working with, but significant amount of the time you find that it is the parent who might be behind the overtraining in the in the you know i mean your snigger there show that it does happen doesn't it either mum or dad really wants their kids to be the tennis player they never were um and, well, you, can't, and you can't blame them for that you can't blame them for that it's it's part of having kids isn't it you want to kind of give them everything you never had but it's but it's that's part of the challenge for therapists isn't it how can you have that conversation how can you help parents get educated when you know that one of the factors is the parent needs to know about things whether it's eating disorders or disordered eating or reds all of these sort of stuff so that's, yeah, no, um, I cover a lot of that within my teaching because I think just have, having that language of how do you um, get through to the child, but also how do you help educate the parent? And I think that's our main job. And there's lots of research coming out now. Uh, Michael um, Rathleth in Denmark did one on knee pain and it basically alluded to is education more important than exercises? And my probably viewpoint is, yes, it is because you could be strong. But if you keep making the same training errors you're going to fundamentally keep breaking down. So I think we've got to take that responsibility that we are coaches of movement. Uh, we are educators of information to empower better informed decision-making. Definitely. And again, um, I'm, it's going to sound like I'm just bigging you up tonight, but I'm very excited. I like that. I'm, so, I'm sorry <laughs> if it sounds like I'm being a bit sycophantic tonight, but but it's just your, your, your courses are so complete. And, and we'll talk about this with relation to the, what you can be doing at Therapy Expo. You've mentioned already the education, the language we use is another thing which you've already kind of touched on as well, which can be so important with the athlete. And I imagine with the parents as well, if you try and educate. So you, you really do work holistically, which we're allowed to use again, that word, in the sense that you are approaching everything from every single angle, which is, which is what surprise surprise is the secret to helping individuals but anyway talking about therapy expo let's get on to that because um that's the really exciting thing which we're talking about as i mentioned before you're going to be you are there on day one as well in mm -hmm. theater a i think that's at 140 or something like that um but both that i think that's more specific for ligament injuries um the the neurocognitive approach but the one you're doing in the STA theatre, which is kind of open air and, and kind of a bit more chilled out people to tell you the truth. You can sit down, grab a coffee and just come and go. It's lovely. That's going to be on day two, opening it up. No pressure. It's going to be like people just come in really excited because they've been overdosed and info on day one and bam, it's going to be um, 30 minutes with Angela Jackson. So that is going to be titled um, How to Integrate Neurocognitive Approaches into a Rehabilitation Setting. Now, I know some people without mentioning names, when you gave me that title, I thought, oh, wow, some people are just going to get very scared by that. They're going to think, but I can't. That's that's very. 
but it shouldn't be complicated that because if you, and I'm going to ask you to break it down now yeah, yeah. into language. So for example, a massage therapist who we know has got a lot of imposter syndrome, we know that understanding that sentence, it doesn't mean don't read me, don't try and understand me because what does that mean? What are we talking about with that sentence, with that title? So I think it got poshed up really. So let's go to how I normally sort of work is keep it simple is I think it started out as train the brain. Mm-hmm. And so that's r- roughly what I would say it is. So if I break it down into why am I talking uh, on these topics and what does it mean? Um, so if you have a, a ligament injury, for example, like a, a sprained ankle, um, what you then may uh, consider is that there's a probability that you're gonna get another one. If we have uh, an ACL injury and you have a reconstruction, um, I guess what would be interesting is to ask the audience, but you know, what, what do you think, Matt? What's the probability of you getting another injury? So you go through a year of rehab, you've had a, a reconstruction, um, what's your chances of getting back to sport, first of all, and playing at the level you did before? I'm not sure the chance of getting back, but I'm pretty sure that the chances of re-injury are, are, are quadrupled or something. I mean, that's yeah, one of the things high. we know, isn't it? It's high, isn't it? Sadly. So 50-50 chance of getting back to playing to the level you, you were at. Um, if you um, basically have a reconstruction, you've got about a 20% chance that you're going to either have another one on the other limb or you're going to re-injure that one. And you kind of go a year and all those thousands of, of um, hours of physiotherapy or rehabilitation and soft tissue work and all the things you need to get back. And the chances of you getting back are quite slim. So it took me to really start to question, well, why is that? Because you you know that I'm like a toddler with a, with a bone or a dog with a bone saying, you know, why, why, why? So I went to a conference a couple of years ago, World World Sports Medicine Congress, and there was a guy called Dustin Grooms who was lecturing, uh, another guy, Mark Paterno. And what they were doing was highlighting this research to say, look, we're not really that good at it. And then Dustin Grooms stood up and he started talking about the brain. And what happens is that if you have a lateral ligament sprain or a ligament injury, patella dislocation, anything like that, but specifically in ACL, they started out the research, is that when you get that first injury, the signals going up to the brain um, are altered, they're faulty. And so we know that the ligaments cause uh, a direct injury to our proprioception. So you get this uh, poor signal going up to the brain and basically what comes down again is even more poor. So you're getting all these different signals going up and going down that are creating a new loop. And what Dustin Grooms established with functional MRIs is that that we've always known is that you damage your proprioception and basically the brain starts to view it differently and it starts to bring down different patterns of movement. He's actually seen that now on functional MRI scanning. So he was able to observe that after these injuries, you actually get a change in some of the motor cortex, sensory cortex in the brain, and that these persist if we don't address these altered sensory signals up and motor signals down. So what we then started to look at was how do we do that? And we started to have to really look at 
at how movement is taught in the therapy setting. And is that in part creating more of these faulty movement patterns? So I started looking into it in a lot more detail and both my children did sports science degrees. And so they learned one of them is a PE teacher and he, he read loads of research and he needed some support on, on some of the reading he did. And I found it fascinating. And basically he was taught about all sorts of um, ways to teach movement. And we're not taught that as physiotherapists. We're not taught about the language of coaching and how it makes a difference. So what I'm really talking about is what we call external cues. And that means that if I say, teach somebody to squat, and I basically say, I want you to uh, push your knee here, and I want you to bend your ankle here, and I want you to do this with your hip. We're talking about lots of language that's mentioning body parts. So that creates what we call an internal focus. As opposed to if I say, and I'm teaching a squat, perch on the bar stool, or in my words, do you want to pee on your feet or do you want to pee in the loop when I'm talking to kids? So do you want to push your knees forward and pee on your feet or do you want to push Brilliant. your hips back and pee in the loop? And the great, kids kind of go, oh, my God, and their hips fly backwards at great speed at the thought of peeing on the feet. So that's what we differentiate as being you could get all sort of hyper focused, obsessed about where the knee is relative to the interspace between the first and the second toe. But is that actually going to make a blind bit of difference when that person returns back to netball? Are they realistically going to be able to go now? Hang on a minute. Angie said in the treatment room, I had to push my hip here, my knee here, my foot here. And at the same time, hang on a minute, Angie, just wait one minute. I've got to catch the ball. I've got to work out where I'm going to pass it next. I've got to assess the fact that some woman's waving their arms in front of me and my coach is screaming at me. So how good are we at actually reproducing the chaos of the sports arena in our little tiny treatment rooms where we do three hops or a series of different tests? So this got me thinking and I started to think about, well, when we do our return to sport, we might rely on things like strength tests and we might rely on hop tests. And we might rely on a whole pile of other things, looking at range of movement, tissue tension. But does that really, really replicate that ability to multitask, to create unplanned movement, to create unpredictability and respond to all those different senses, colours, noises and all the other things? And so I've spent the last couple of years really going, well, actually, when I work with kids, because I have to think about, they don't know where a knee is. They don't know what a quad is. And I began to realize that I actually have this external focus, not because I'm clever, but because of the population group I work with. And so I look back and these two said children of mine, who've both been international athletes, when they were little, they worked in a gym where it was the old Manchester United strength and conditioning coach. And he had loads of like flashing lights and they had to respond to colors. And he basically knew what he was doing 10, 12 years ago with getting people to be able to move without thinking, to not get them obsessed with how their technique was. And he did a brilliant job on creating this chaotic world. And the gym looks like such good fun where he is. 
But actually, he knew exactly what he was doing. Clever guy. But the science has now caught up. It's it's so interesting because I know one of your big things is like, don't treat kids as many adults. Yeah. Okay? Is it wrong to treat adults as big kids? Because it, the things you're saying make me think that with kids, we instinctively like the cue. I mean, bravo. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I hope somebody listening to that can use that with a child, with a, with a young athlete or something. Do you want to pee on your toes or do you want to pee in the loo? Because that's just a classic example. But when it comes, suddenly when they get older, then we start suddenly thinking, right, we need to start using some clever language now and some scientific thing because they can read more. And when really, you just mentioned it, keep it fun keep it real, keep it external cues. So is that the problem? Should we treat adults as like more like big kids? Um, I don't think we should think of them as adults or kids. It's just that in order to get transferability of a skill, the way in which we teach it is massively important. So it's you split it into what we call implicit and explicit learning. Um, go back to uh, if I was teaching somebody to ski, would I get stuck into a massive amount of like auditory cues or would I tell them to, you know, point the snowboard or point the ski down the slope and let them feel the movement? And so we know that when we teach, you know, when you teach a child to ride a bike, do you tell them to put certain pressure on the pedals? Do you tell them to how much to bend their knee? How, or do you just basically cling on to the saddle for dear life chasing after your beloved child? and hope to God they pick it up. And I guess what you'll realize is that when we first learn a skill, we may need to give a little bit more input. So when you're first learning to drive a car, those early skills are very jerky, they're very awkward, and they are quite cognitive. By that we mean you have to think. But actually over time, you learn to be able to not only move the clutch and the accelerator, you actually learn to be able to steer. And then you learn to be able to even use your mirrors and then add the sat nav and then add everything up. And so I guess what we've got to do is create that journey from being very conscious of what we're doing because we haven't got the competency to developing athletes that can do it without thinking. That's got a posh name, as all of this cognitive thinking has. It's called implicit learning. And really what that means is that we have a responsibility to find the language that enables somebody to, for example, hop, decelerate and change direction without thinking. So that it frees the brain up to do what the brain needs to do, have an awareness of spatial um, speed of movement and things like that. Is the person coming at, at me quickly? Do I need to make an adjustment to my movement? Otherwise, we're going to smack into each other and have a concussion. So what we've got to do is we have a responsibility as, to, as clinicians to understand how to coach movement. Because if we get inside their heads when they get in the field, if they've only got these very, very uh, intricate details of how to move, then that clutters up their brain. And if they get nervous, part of that memory is, a, is taken up by nerves, parts taken up by the therapeutic interventions, and there's nothing left to make the right decisions on the field. And this is where we think these re-injuries occur. Fascinating. So for people who are listening, because some people think as long as they introduce some hops and kind of 
stuff like that at the end and that's the end stage rehab and they're very proud of themselves and rightfully so because a lot of the time we don't even get that they're just you know can you do this knee extension right you're ready to play again so for people who are quite proud of themselves rightfully so and they're doing those kind of hops maybe multi, kind of multi-directional and stuff what should they be thinking of adding to that in order to stimulate this neurocognitive development great question so two things one is that um if you damage your, say, for example, let's just take it away from rehab for a second. If you uh, had normal hearing and you um, suddenly lost your hearing due to an incident, a virus or whatever, then another of your senses would come along to the rescue and go, I tell you what, you can't hear anymore, but let's upskill your eyes. Let's basically make your eyes help you out or your touch might improve if you lost your sight. So we're very, very comfortable with the fact that if one sense is powered down, another sense will basically help take over. And so when proprioception is powered down, it's almost always the vision that takes over. So part of the skill is, say, for example, that as we are doing our hopping training, can we reduce or balance training, for example, can we make sure that they're not becoming dependent on their eyes? So what happens when maybe we get them turning their head rapidly left and right? Can they still maintain their balance? What happens when we move different colours in front of them or we, we start to do different things to change their visual field? I use some little trendy glasses um, and that basically filters the amount of light that they get. So I'm affecting it. Um, and I guess a lot of us have thought about that concept and said, yeah, we get that proprioception's been injured and we get that the vision takes over. But we then started doing stuff like closed eyes work. So can you still do the same skill, but with your eyes closed? So I guess if I thought about the young tennis players I've been seeing tonight, how many times during their match? So think about retraining the person for what they do. How many times? Do they close their eyes during a game? Excellent. Hopefully never. I might There's do it if the ball Brilliant. was coming at us really, really fast. But you know what? Fundamentally, there's almost no sport. I don't know whether Tom Daly shuts his eyes when he's basically spinning like a, I don't know what, coming off a diving board, but he's going to have to open them to enter the water. So I might close my eyes if I jumped off a high board. But what I'm really alluding to is it's very very rare that closing our eyes is ever going to prepare us for the sports field so what that's things so good. like i'm going yeah? to pause there because i want listeners because i because i'm st i'm thinking myself of the number of times where i'm very proud of myself because i'm getting them to do this exercise and they've gone now try it with your eyes closed see how more difficult it is let's do that thinking that that's a progression and it is a progression in a way if you were trying to develop something else but if you're trying to get them back on pitch and like you say, to recreate that chaos, closing their eyes is, is if anything, a regression. You're, you're taking them away from what they need to be working towards. So that for, for listeners there, that's why it's fine to believe something, to do something. And then next week when your client comes back to go, you know what, we're going to change it slightly. We're not going to do so much of that close eyes thing now. We're going to try something else. And the client won't suspect you of being an idiot. They'll love the fact that you're changing stuff because that on your course, that must be a real... <gasps> moment because so many people do that thinking that you know it's a great idea 
And I might use it as an assessment tool. What happens to their balance when I close their eyes? But it's not going to be part of my big home exercise programming. So um, you can do all sorts of things. I put um, like over a pair of sunglasses. So even just putting a pair of sunglasses on affects their vision indoors. If you then put a pair of super duper old scratch sunglasses on and put a bit of sticky back or sellotape on them, then you make them more opaque. And then that filters the amount of light that they get. And, and there's some really great, I'll send you, um, I'll put in the chat um, uh, a couple of links to a couple of really good videos that exemplify what we're talking about. And this is what we're going to do at Therapy Expo in your um, session is we'll get the goggles out. We'll perhaps get Matt up on stage and we'll or get you to else. do. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, and so basically we'll get you to do like a step up or a step down, something that we do in rehab. We'll get you to do a bit of hopping and we'll look and see, do your eyes um, affect when I remove some of that vision or that dependency? Does basically that affect the way your movement skills function so that when you're on the field and you're suddenly looking left to check where your mate is and spinning your head right to see where to pass the ball next and all of those different things, the colours and all the sounds that you're getting, that massive sensory overload, where are you at with your movement skills? Do they break down because you've never trained them that way? So that's the sort of the visual element of it. And then with the kind of unpredictability um, that we might do something, for example, like um, I could hold a red uh, cone up and that represents uh, a squat and I could hold a yellow cone up and that represents a, a lunge. So what we're going to do is if you think about it, too many of us prescribe 10 squats, uh, then 10 lunges and then 10 deadlifts. So where in the field of sport have you ever seen a footballer do 10 squats and then 10 lunges and then 10 deadlifts? He might do 30 during the course of the game, but he's never going to do 10 in succession. So he does a throw in, then he sprints, then he kicks, then he turns. So we've got to start to go, well, hang on a minute. Beyond those three sets of hops or even the crossover hop, does that even vaguely cover what this guy's going to do? No, it doesn't. So how do we make that what we call this differential learning? Do a bit of this and then a bit of that. So every three reps, you might chuck something else in. So you might say, right, well, let's do three squats, followed by three lunges, followed by two squats, followed by one lunge. But then when they're first learning the skill, they've got to learn how to squat and lunge. But as we progress them through, we've basically got to create a bit more chaos and unpredictability by suddenly holding up a light or a cone or chucking a ball at them as they try and do it. Just I saw Gary's comment that he's been working this way for a long time. And Gary, like I, have done stuff over the years that we go, yeah, cool, that's exactly how I work. But we didn't really have a Scooby-Doo why we were doing what we were doing until the research caught up. And that's true of so much evidence-based work. So it's about um, creating all the stuff that we know, multitasking. Can you count backwards from 100 at the same time as continuing your hop pattern? Can you count back in threes? But critically, Matt, you've got to be able to do these skills in isolation. 
So let's say, for example, I said to you, stand up for me and start hopping on the spot. And at the same time, I want you to count back from 103s. And you kind of go, oh, actually, Angie, I can't count back from 103 stood still. <laughs> That's not going to help, is it? Because now I'm going to create fear. And particularly in all of our age groups of patients, if we create fear, we actually affect the way the brain and the motor skills work. We get more tense. So the last thing you want to do is, is slightly put them too far out of their comfort zone. So we want to create an appropriate level of challenge without freaking them out. And so consequently, you've got to work on what kind of learner are they? Younger children can't dual task until they probably hit eight or 10. So therefore you're not gonna give them really complicated stuff to do, but you might have a game of Simon Says. Only move when I say Simon, don't move when I don't. Simon Says do this. And that's a very good example of how we can play with the brain to create the same stuff. Wonderful. Yeah, amazing. So looking forward to um, watching someone do that live um, at the front from the back. I will I'll be standing at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so, I um, think Nikki and, and Gary are fully aware it's going to be you. <laughs> Nikki Mansfield says, this seems so obvious. We talk about functional movement being anything that replicates a client's real life movement demands. Why haven't we carried this over to the senses? It does, like I said at the beginning, it does sound obvious, obvious when Angie Jackson says it, um, but it's 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 great. It just makes us think. Um, what, how, I love the expression chaos. You know, create the chaos which that's not mine. I'm not going to take take was, confidence. I, was, I from knew it. you'd say that. I knew you'd say that. I know you too well. Um, but yeah, that's something which I think listeners should think of. I need to create this because chaos. It's such a good word because suddenly you're thinking of the lights, the sound, the the multi-sensory things you have to put up with the distractions, the people running around. It's great, really good. And and I can sense that not enough therapists are aware of this and therefore incorporating it into their end-stage rehab. You already pre-answered one of the questions I was gonna have is is where do you put this? Do you put it at the beginning or and the answer is look at what the client can do, don't overload them, which was great. Mm, kind of. So let's think about a, a knee patient. Um so if you were to think about, um, for those that are listening live, um, is let's think about the very first thing you're probably going to teach them is a static quad. So your question would be, do you say tighten the kneecap, tighten the quads, do this to the knee? Or do you say squash the tomato underneath your knee? One is internal, one is external. So you don't wait down the line, you introduce this external cueing right from the beginning mm -hmm. as they start to stand up into maybe like a just a single small knee bend a single leg squat what you might do is use the analogy and again even with we were talking about is this about adults and children my oa knees if they basically pee on their feet as they get out of a chair they're going to land forwards into their knees if i teach them to hip hinge by peeing on the loo then they're going to offload their OA knees. So the cues work for all age groups. And this is where we shouldn't get too hung up on. I'm not a kid's physio and he's got nothing to teach me is it's about learning to move. The fact that kids, you know, do it in a, a different, slightly different way. The cueing is the same, um, but it's about making sure that as soon as that patient is able, we move the language into the direction in which we want them to go. So if I'm going to talk about jumping and I want power, then I'll say, 
See if you can hit your head on the ceiling. Give them the direction, jump through the wall. Yeah, I think talk, um, what there's been a fascinating research study that changed uh, the ground reaction force. So you as a runner understand that the longer you're on the ground, the greater the force and all those sorts of things. And so when they were queuing a drop jump, which means you jump from about a 30 centimeter platform and you jump to the floor, if they queued it land soft and quiet, as opposed to bend your knees, they change the ground reaction force. The mm -hmm. queuing is the critical part. And so we need to understand, firstly, how does the brain change when the injury occurs? How can we influence that by training the brain right from the early stages? And that goes back to how do we actually coach movement? And there's a guy called Nick Winkleman who has the language of coaching. It's the most phenomenal book. Um, and you look at the, where did I get the chaos from? From control to chaos continuum. There's just been one out on basketball and the original one was in soccer. And that's a guy called Matt Tabener, T-A-B-E-N-E-R. And he's brilliant. He's, he's, you know, absolutely phenomenal clinician who's worked out that yes, it doesn't stop when they can basically get back to running and they're pain free. It's got to actually replicate what are they going back to. Amazing. Fantastic. Um, we missed that a little bit because are you okay to, to hang around for another 10 yeah, minutes? Yeah. Are you okay? You sure? I just want to check because it is nine o'clock now. Listeners, there was a bit of a technical problem initially, so we're going to do another 10 minutes, but I don't mind. If you disappear, Nicky Mansfield, I won't hold it against you much, but, um, but we will go for another 10 minutes. That's okay with everyone. So I'm interested as well, um, just to start rounding things up, um, with regards to the research and the evidence, I, I heard you saying once something interesting that we shouldn't confuse confidence with neurocognitive ability. Just because someone sees conf confident and they don't think they're going to injure themselves again, that doesn't mean that they've necessarily got all the cognitive ability they need to not re-injure themselves. It was like it wasn't, they weren't parallel, were they? It was something to do with that. I'm sure you explained yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. No, I'm not sure I can. But um, so this guy, Mark Paterno, um, who's a, an American researcher in ACLs, um, looked at a group of collegiate um, aged, um, so late teens um, athletes who had had an ACL and they had a reconstruction. And I guess his question was, um, was it those that exuded more confidence on their outcome scores that went on to re-injure or was it those that lacked confidence? And I would have always said, if you'd have asked me hand on heart, I'd always said it's because they lack confidence and maybe their brain hasn't, you know, returned to being able to move without thought. But actually, the irony was that in a group of, of female athletes who had had a reconstruction, um, around one in five, 22 percent, um, got a re-injury. And when he started to break that down in that group that got re-injured, They'd all passed their strength isokinetic tests. They'd all passed their four hop tests, the single hop, the triple hop, the crossover hop and the timed hop. Um, and they'd basically all got scored really highly on self-confidence on an outcome measure that was used. Um, so what do we leave ourselves with? So what we thought was that as long as we check their outcome, given them confidence, 
We check their strength and we check their dynamic ability, their power test, and they had symmetry. It was that group that had a 10 times greater risk of re-injury than the group who basically maybe didn't pass all their hot tests and they didn't have that self-confidence. So that was when you sat in this conference going, oh my God, so what the heck do we rely on? This is what we do. We thought that we were really good at this and yet we're not showing any reduction in the volume of injuries or re-injuries. And our lateral ligament sprains is like ridiculously high. If you've had one lateral ligament sprain, the chances of you having another are crazy, crazy high. And that's because of all of this sort of, you know, not quite understanding how the brain works in response to injury and, and what it needs to get it better. And so then fortunately, he wasn't the first up. I think it would have probably ended with him, would have probably been all slitting <laughs> our wrists and throats and God knows what. But basically, Dustin Grooms and his team then came up to the stage and went, but don't panic. We've got some ideas. We're understanding what these functional MRIs, the world of virtual reality, how if you actually watch somebody kicking a football and replicating that movement with your inner range quad, but you're currently watching somebody kicking a ball at the same time, that helps the brain to understand what it's doing. So it's then looking and going, well, how do we utilize that virtual, rehab, uh, virtual reality into our rehab setting? So I get my guys watching YouTube clips of roller coasters and Strictly Come Dancing and the movements going on around them, and they're still replicating the skills that, that are similar to that. Amazing. Fantastic. And, and the joy is of this whole neuroplasticity thing is if you give them the right stimulus, then they can repair or, or un, uh, kind of unblur this section of the brain that has in theory been kind of blurred because of the injury and, and you can get them back to full function again and hopefully not join those statistics of getting re-injured. Yeah. So it's called sensory re-weighting. The mm -hmm. senses get re-weighted in response to injury. So our job is to effectively sensory reweight them back again and make them better at being proprioceptively aware through a whole series of different techniques. Very exciting. And what I love is, I mean, we try and be evidence informed, but there's always this picking, cherry picking the bits which, you know, we use and work. But what you stated there was that the re-injury rate is huge. And we can't keep going on going, oh, yeah, well, obviously, we're really good at our jobs because we're why not. are these people still getting re-injured? And, and we're not saying that this is like definitely the final answer, but at least it's something there which we can work on now and then re, you know, assess and study and look at our own success rate in clinics. So I think Nikki's summed it up very nicely, um, as she always does. Uh, Nikki says, I'm here till the end. Thank you, Nikki, for hanging around. And again at Therapy Expert. Thank you, Nikki. Well, we've got somebody who wants to go up on the stage then. This is absolute gold. I feel I know very little about rehab. This has got me looking at it from a whole other angle. It is a, a kind of a turn, isn't it, to look at your rehab from a different angle. But I also love the way, Angie, you make a point in, in a lot of your courses of stressing that, guys, this might sound revolutionary to you, but we're not chucking the baby out with the bathwater. Definitely it's not, not. throw away all the courses you've done before me. Everything you're doing is still valid. It's just, again, we're just tweaking a bit and adding this. Yeah, is that fair to say? A hundred percent. I mean, basically everything that I've talked about, you're still squatting, lunging, uh, you're hopping, you're jumping, you're doing strength tests, you're doing soft tissue work because soft tissue work absolutely 
facilitates movement. It trains the brain. So all the stuff you know is still there. It's still relevant. But you might have to shift some of your emphasis or your language to make it a little bit more transferable so that the skills they learn in the treatment setting become a lot more integrated into how they're going to utilize them when they go back to sport. But 100%, nothing, and I sense Gary and I are on the same page looking at some of his comments, nothing that we did 10, 15, and 20 odd years ago, you'd say, actually, if you look at most of this, this stuff, you start off lying on your back as a baby when you first start to learn to move. And then you eventually roll and then you go to all fours and then you go to kneeling. Well, we can't make a baby move in a different way. And then they learn to squat and then they learn to run. And then so fundamentally, movement patterning follows a sequence of development. So we're never going to change that. But we might learn more about how to stimulate an outcome that is more desirable. But the actual fundamentals don't change. Excellent. Fantastic. And that's really important. That's a message which I think uh, all of our guests kind of uh, are really keen to stress is that there's a, there's, a th there's a fear these days that something new comes out and you've got to ditch everything else and you've wasted all your money, but it's not that. Normally the great things are just the little tweaks. It's just the subtle yeah. stuff. You know, it's not suddenly here's a brand new way of doing things. Not at all. Amazing. Right. Well, people, if that hasn't given you a reason to come to the STA theater at 9.15 a.m. on day two of Therapy Expo, then I don't know what else could apart from free quality flat whites with oat milk. But we'll, tr we'll work on that. But, yeah, hopefully um, those of you listening, it has made your decision. I don't know, Mark, maybe it's made it more difficult because you were looking at somebody else at 9.15. But if you're in rehab and you accept the fact that a lot of your patients aren't getting better and you wondered why well this is something which you can tweak and try and um, it will be presented to you by the wonderful Angela Jackson on day two um, apart from coming to see you at Therapy Expo Angela what else have you got going you've got courses online they're running throughout aren't they via the website have you got anything else coming up before yeah Expo um, yes going down to uh, Northampton to do an NHS course for a lot of changes in the NHS people who traditionally only treated people up to the age of eight, suddenly having to treat them up to the age of 16. So I get drafted in to help them make that uh, adjustment in their CPD. Um, equally, we've got tons of NHS contracts where um, older, uh, the physios are, are used to treating adults, but suddenly they've got to embrace kids down to the age of 12 or eight. So lots of different things there. And then got a course in Tewkesbury this weekend, Mm -hmm. um, and then a few various different online sort of webinars before uh, Therapy Expo. So, yeah, good little uh, keeps me out of mischief, but lots of yeah. online teaching available. Definitely fantastic. And like I say, Angela Jackson Physio.com is the place to visit. Nikki has come back with Matt. Have you put Angie on the first on day two to dissuade us all from the usual first night partying, uh, networking? Question marks. Yes, that's probably a, yeah, that's probably a, a good reason not to go out again, Nikki. Um, Especially if I want. put these stroboscopic <laughs> glasses on you with a hangover, God, you're, you're really going to know about it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, no, wonderful, right? And if people want to follow um, Angela Jackson on Twitter and Instagram, it's all both the same at Angie J Physio. Uh, on Facebook, you've got Andrew Jackson Physio, which again, I recommend people join if, if Facebook is your flavor. 
Um, and then we'll make sure that links like, for example, Kids Back to Sport and the other things you've mentioned go into the show notes as well. Right, we got there. Sorry about the technical problems. If you've been with us from the beginning, if you listen to the podcast, it all went great, didn't it? You know, you don't even know there was an issue until, <laughs> <laughs> until now. Um, we will be back uh, next week. Um, just to let you know, we will be back uh, next Tuesday on the 17th of October. If you want to join us live, I'm going to be joined by James Earls and Owen Lewis of Born to Move. I'm delighted they're going to be in the SCA Theatre at Therapy Expo on day one at four o'clock to deliver a whole hour of theory and practical presentation entitled Understanding Functional Links, the Lower Limb. Um, also joining me next week with Owen and James is going to be Anne-Marie Mazzieri, director of the ST School. And together they're going to present um, this thing called the story, which is something that Anna-Marie has put together with Owen and um, a couple of other speakers as well, and James. And the idea is, is to try and link the information you'll be getting at Therapy Expo. Therapy Expo is, talking of chaos, Therapy Expo is chaos, especially as the speaking and the quality gets better and better. It is, it's very stressful choosing who to go to, and it's just chaotic. And what, So what Anna-Marie and co are trying to do is just kind of link everything together and, and get some main principles, which you should kind of hear replicated as you go from, from presentation to presentation and to just join everything together. So that's what we'll be talking about um, with James Earls, Owen Lewis, Anna-Marie Mazzieri next week. If you want to join us live, then just go along to the STA um, YouTube channel at eight o'clock. If you can't join us live, then that's fine. Just listen to the podcast, but please do subscribe and leave us a rating. Um, until then, uh, everyone who's joined us in the live lounge and put up with the technical difficulties, thank you very much. Thank you, Angie Jackson, once again, for giving up your time. My pleasure. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm just going to shut down the live lounge now, and I'll say thank you to you personally, Angie, if you can stick around. Um, until then, everybody, thanks for listening, and take care of each other. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.